And if you have your Bible, I'll invite you to take out your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke 20, 9 through 18. We're coming to the last of what has been 15 weeks studying the parables of Jesus in Luke's gospel. And in all of these parables, there are roughly 30 parables throughout the synoptic Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the the synoptic gospels. Uh, And we've looked at 15 from the Gospel of Luke. And all of those parables are where Jesus takes a story from something out of everyday life and uses that story to teach a shocking spiritual truth or what we would call for, in many ways, kingdom truths. Truths about how to live when Jesus rules and reigns in our lives. Truths about how we we conduct ourselves. Truths about how we hear and understand and, and practice God's word. If you remember the parable of the sower, where we started, that's a parable about how we hear and understand God's word, but also how we put it into practice in our lives. And so, so many different parables and so many of those different truths. Uh, we, we learned about how to live with and love other people who are much different from us. We learned ab- about things like earthly priorities, how we prioritize our earthly life and the, the priorities that we have um, because of Jesus being our Savior. And we, we talked about heavenly perspective, that, that we have a heavenly perspective related to the second coming of Christ. And that means we don't just like stick our head in the sand and not pay any attention. We don't live with our head in the clouds, but that we have an earthly pers- a heavenly perspective that pushes us in doing the things that we do in everyday life. And Jesus taught stories about that. He taught stories about how we deal with our money and our, our possessions. And when we're living a kingdom-minded life, it affects very practical things like our checkbook. And uh, if we still have checkbooks, like our calendar, right? Our bank app and our calendar app. That the stories of Jesus show us how we live those things out. We talked a lot about religion versus relationship. And quite frequently in the parables, Jesus is attacking the religious people because he wants people to understand that what he's looking for is a heart of relationship. He wants people to have a relationship with him and not just be doing religious rituals. That even when we come to a table like communion, if we do it without a heart that loves the Lord and we do it without a heart that has a desire to serve God, like it's just a religious ritual and Jesus isn't interested in religious rituals. He wants relationship with people. And so as we finish up today, we're going to do the parable of the wicked tenants in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. All of the rest of Jesus' parables were written roughly 2,000 years ago. As you can tell from the title, this one was written during COVID. And we know that's true. We know that's true because it's about tenants who wouldn't pay their rent. So obviously it happened during COVID. If you were a tenant that would not pay your rent, the Bible says that you were wicked right here. No, I'm just kidding. Lots of people had lots of different reasons for not paying the rent, not being able to pay the rent. We get it. I'm just kidding. Please don't get up and leave related to that. But in this story, there were tenants who were supposed to be paying rent, and they wouldn't pay their rent. And Jesus is going to use that to teach us a much more valuable lesson. The parable of the wicked tenants is all about the authority of Jesus and how that was rejected by people. Whenever Jesus tells one of these stories, one of these parables, he's using that to shock people into listening, to open their ears, and to opening their minds, and to considering a spiritual truth. And the spiritual truth that we'll see today is that Jesus is the authority, yet many people reject that authority. And so immediately you can see, even though we haven't even started reading the text yet, that the topic that we'll talk about today is as applicable in the 21st century as it was in the first century when Jesus was walking around. Because, ladies and gentlemen, we live in a culture that disdains authority. 
we live in a culture that hates any kind of authority. The, the social gospel right now, the, 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 the secular cultural gospel is tolerance and inclusivity. Everybody tolerate everybody. Everybody be inclusive of everybody. And I would submit to you that the secular gospel of tolerance and inclusivity as at its heart a rejection of authority. Why do I say that? If you tolerate me and I tolerate you and we tolerate everybody and everyone tolerates everything, then nobody has any authority. And if you don't have the right to have any authority in my life and I don't have the right to have any authority in your life, then you know what none of us has to be? None of us has to be accountable. So people don't like authority, and so we preach things like tolerance and inclusivity. Because if we all just get along and all tolerate and are all inclusive of each other, then nobody has any authority. Unless you disagree with us, then we'll be intolerant and exclusive, right? And so this message of authority and Jesus being the, th the authority is so timely for today where people want nothing to do with any kind of authority, and we would submit that when we don't, I would submit that when, when we don't like authority and we don't want accountability, the only outcome I've said before is anarchy, right? And you look around and you wonder, like, how could the world get to where it is? It's because nobody wants to be told they're wrong. Nobody wants to be put under anyone else's authority. And the only real outcome for that is anarchy. People want freedom. Give me freedom. I need freedom. Let me have freedom. What they really want is autonomy, Right? Because autonomy and freedom are two very different things. And we say we want freedom, but what we really want is just the right to make all of our own decisions. But we realize that that's not really very free at all. So as Jesus went about his ministry, his authority was constantly questioned. That as he showed up on earth and said, hey, I'm God the Son. I'm here. I'm God. I'm man. I'm God the Son. And I have authority over life. Like, I'm actually the king of this kingdom. Some people believed him. Some people rejected him. He claimed authority. And what you're going to see, if, we, if you look at the context of Luke chapter 20, in fact, if you have your Bible, look across the page, or you can flip back a screen or two. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 28, uh, the, the title of that section is called The Triumphal Entry. And it says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And that's important in Luke's gospel and the flow of the narrative. Because from chapter 9 through this point in chapter 19, Luke is painting a picture where Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem for his final, uh, the accomplishment of his mission. And I talked about that some last week. I won't belabor the point this week. But, but at this point, at the triumphal entry, Jesus' mission is being accomplished. He's going into the final week of his passion mission in life, where he's to, to go to the cross and die in our place for our sins. And you'll notice in uh, Luke 19, 38, the people said, and, and you'll remember the, the triumphal entry, palm leaves on the ground, they're shouting Hosanna, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Kings had authority. And some people called Jesus the king. Now, I talked about this last week, that they, they were a little confused and misunderstood what they even meant when they said king. So when they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, and then Jesus goes into, in the next section in Luke, goes into their temple and cleanses the temple and says, you're using God's house for things that God never intended God's house to be. He's claiming authority over the most sacred of their holy sites and the most sacred piece of their religion. He's actually claiming his authority over that. And what Jesus is doing all throughout Luke is stamping his authority. And we see how people respond to that. 
So in Luke chapter 20, verse 1, the setup for this story that Jesus is going to tell, one day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and he was preaching the gospel, a message different than what they anticipated, he was preaching the gospel, it says the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, those are the who's who among the religious and political leaders, came. Verse 2, and said to him, tell us by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? They challenged Jesus' authority. They questioned Jesus' authority. And here's why. They didn't like his authority because his authority challenged their authority. Now here's a kingdom truth that is as applicable in the 21st century as it was in Jesus' day. People don't like Jesus' authority because it challenges my authority. People don't like Jesus' authority because it challenges their authority. People don't like what Jesus has to say in the Bible and the teachings of Jesus, and we reject the teachings of Jesus because those teachings challenge our own autonomy and our own authority in our own lives. We live in a world that will continue to reject the message of the gospel. And I want you to understand that a piece of that is because it challenges our own authority and our own ability to make our own decisions. And that's as true in my life as a pastor or your life as a Christian as it is of people out there. We will we'll always push against Jesus' authority when it comes into conflict with my authority, right? And what, how I want to live my life and how I want to spend my time and how I want to spend my money and how I want to do the things that I want to do. You know, and what happens is, is like, I want to go one direction and have my authority and then I read the Bible and Jesus' authority says something different and, and I'll always push against his authority because it challenges mine. And so he tells a story to these people about those who had rejected him and rejected his authority. And that's the context that we find this story, this last parable in Luke's gospel. So in Luke chapter 20, verse 9, he begins to tell the story. It says, he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, and he let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. One of the amazing things that Jesus did in his day as he told these stories, and I've tried to point it out to you as you've listened, is he just took normal scenes from everyday life, right? This guy who's sowing seed, that everybody knew what that was about. He uses fishing analogies, he uses all kinds of different analogies, and here he uses a scene that everybody would have understood. And in that day, you would have had a landowner, and he would have probably owned a large piece of land, and he would have, years before, planted vineyards, and they would have grown up, and when they were ready to be cared for, he would hire people to come in and care for the, that vineyard. He would sublet out either his entire property or pieces of his property to different tenants, and they would come in, and they would care for the vines, and they would harvest the produce, and then they were in, in, supposed to pay the rent to him for that. They would make their livelihood off of the property that he had purchased and cultivated, and then they would care for it, and they would make their living, and then they would in turn pay a lease to him. And in case that's like hard for us to grasp, it's interesting because some of the stories that Jesus tells are very different than things that happen today. But in this instance, it's very close to things that happen today. For example, the South Hill Mall. You guys love the South Hill Mall? I spend a lot of time at the South Hill Mall. I have three daughters. So we'll go to the South Hill Mall, and, and, and I don't know if you knew this, but there's always a place open in the South Hill Mall to lease. I don't know why, but there's always at least one or 15 places that you could lease. 
in the South Hill Mall. So if I decided that I wanted to lease a piece of, uh, like a, a, a storefront in the South Hill Mall, and I'm going to sell... I'm going to sell candles because people love candles. People need candles. Amen, ladies, right? And, and we're going to sell soap because soap is a big deal. And we're going to sell bath bombs because bath bombs are really cool. Some of you men are like, what are bath bombs? Talk to a guy with a daughter and you'll know, okay? So I get my soap and my bath bombs and my candles. I get it all together. And I'm going to, I'm going to set up my storefront. What I don't get to do is just put all my stuff in my red wagon and pull it into the South Hill Mall and say, oh, that one looks like it's open. We'll use that one and set up shop and start selling, right? I've got to call the uh, property management company at the South Hill Mall and I've got to say, hey, I'm interested in this little storefront over there. And they're going to say to me something like, okay, that'll cost you $32,000 a week for lease. And I'll say, that's a lot of soap and bath bombs, but I'll see what I can do, Right? And the idea would be that I would go and that I would use their, their storefront and I would set it up and I would do my thing and you would all come and you would buy bath bombs. And some of you men would be like, I've never experienced bath bombs before. Do they make these for the shower? And I would say, absolutely they do. And we would get, like, have a cult following. You would tell all your friends and everybody else. And the next thing you know, my store would be a great success. And once a month, guess what would happen? Somebody would come to me or they would call me or they would email me and they would say, you're... Lease is due, $56 million for a month. No wonder nobody's at the South Hill Mall, right? And I would pay them the lease. Here's your money. It's a part of the profits that I've been making, and this has been amazing, and it's been really great, and here's your part of the lease. That's the picture that Jesus is going to use. People are like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. This happens all the time in our culture. Verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's how they paid their lease in that day, right? They're going to give him soap, bath bombs, candles. It's going to make his day. It's going to be amazing. That's how he pays the lease. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, that's the part that nobody's expecting. I'm at the South Hill Mall, I'm selling my soap and my bath bombs and all the beauty works and things that go along with it. And the guy comes in from the property management company, he's like, it's time to pay your lease. I can write him a check, which is old school. I can Venmo him. He might ask for it in cash. But what he's not expecting is for me to like start pelting him with bath bombs, right? He's not expecting me to get a baseball bat out from behind the counter because we know how the South Hill Mall is. So you got to have a baseball bat behind the counter and start beating him with it. That's the shocker in Jesus' day, just like it would be in our day. You're like, this part of the story doesn't seem to fit. And what happens is, it now, as Jesus tells the story, everybody's awake. Like, what is he talking about? The servant was beaten and sent away. And what would happen inevitably if this actually happened in that day? If those people came in and they squatted on someone's property and they just kept taking the profits and they wouldn't pay then that landowner could call the government, okay, not phone call, probably a text in that day, and he could get a hold of the government, and they would go, and they would forcibly remove those tenants. He would prove, this is my property, they're not paying, here's my servant with a black eye. And they would remove that, those tenants, forcibly remove them. So that's what everybody's thinking is going to happen. Jesus continues the story. It says the tenants beat him, sent away up the handed. Verse 11, he sent another servant. Now people are starting to think as they're hearing Jesus, wow, he sent a second servant? Oh, okay. 
But they also beat him, and they treated him shamefully, and they sent him away empty-handed. Now, we don't know what treated shamefully means, and we won't speculate. But they beat him, they did other things to him, and then they sent him away empty-handed. So now, landowner is 0 for 2, and now Jesus' listeners to this story are like, wow, now he's really going to call the cops, because that's really bad. Verse 12, and he sent yet a third. Remember, parable, short story illustrating a shocking spiritual truth. This is just another layer of shock. They, he sent a third servant. Where's Jesus going with the story? Nobody would send a third servant. What happened to the third servant, by the way? And if you're, if you're servant number three, how do you feel right now, right? You see your first buddy come back. Like, I wasn't expecting that black eye. Uh, that guy's got a black eye and a broken leg. And now you're number three. And he's like, all right, you go. Uh, this one they wounded. Also, they wounded and they cast out. And wounded, like it's another level of severity, right? So you have three servants who went. And each of them were treated more severely, more shamefully, and rejected more thoroughly. All three of those men. And by this time, Jesus' listeners to the story are like, what is the point that he's trying to get across? No one in their right mind would send two servants, let alone three different servants. Why is he telling us this story, this picture of rejection? And in that day, okay, like in our day, in my little silly scenario about the mall, there would be some like shame involved in that, right? And the police would come and lock me up and the whole thing. But in Jesus' day, it was a honor and shame culture and for this landowner to have his servants shamed would have been a shame on himself and in jesus's day you did everything that you could do in in ancient near eastern context really you did everything that you could to preserve your honor and to keep yourself from shame and what jesus just described is shamefully treated servants meaning a shamefully treated landowner and what the expectation would have been was that he would have acted with retribution he would have reacted with anger that he would have sought out just retribution to preserve his own honor that this man who owned this vineyard in Jesus' story had every right to seek retributive justice and act in that way and in fact in that culture they would have expected him to do that to preserve his own honor That's why what comes next in Jesus' story is just the next building block of shock and teaching a spiritual truth. Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? And everybody who's listening to the story knows what he should do. He should react with vindication and retribution. I will send my beloved son That may sound familiar, my beloved son. You remember at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew's gospel, chapter 4. The father, when Jesus is baptized, the father says to to Jesus, says about Jesus, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus uses these same words intentionally in this story. He says, after all three servants have been rejected, I will send my beloved son Perhaps they will respect him. Jesus is painting a picture. He's painting a picture of indictment against people who are rejecting him. And he's saying he's sending, he sent servants 
Now what about the, the beloved son? Maybe they will respect the beloved son. Verse 14, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And there was actually precedent for that in their law, that if somebody didn't come and claim that land in due time, that they could have actually inherited it themselves. In verse 15 it says, and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And I want you to see the progression in this rejection from the first servant, to the second, to the third, and finally to the son. Because again, Jesus is painting a picture with the story that he's telling. And there's an intensification of this rejection with each servant to the point where the son is actually killed. And a continued intensification of what it means to reject. And that will have bearing on how we interpret this parable. Then this question is asked, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? They've rejected the servants. They've rejected and killed the son. What now? Will there be more grace given? Will there be more people sent in order to to beg for what's supposed to be given? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those servants, those tenants, and will give the vineyard to others. That ultimately this story ends with retribution for some. Let me tell you what's actually going on here as we interpret this text. The man in the vineyard is God. Think Old Testament and what the Old Testament helps us to know about God because that's what people in Jesus' first audience would have, under, would have known about God. They would have had the Old Testament and read it and understood something about God, Yahweh. And so the man in this story and all that this man does is a picture of God. The vineyard is actually the nation of Israel, the people of God. Several places in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as a vineyard. Isaiah chapter 5, you can write that down and go to it later. It's beautiful poetry, and it's about Israel as God's vineyard that he tends and that he cares for. And there's great crossover between that and even this text. And the vineyard, then, is the nation of Israel. The tenants are the leaders of Israel. Those who were supposed to care for and cultivate. That they had a responsibility. That they had a stewardship for the vineyard. That's the leaders of Israel. That's those people that we said up in verse 1 and 2. That were the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Those religious and political leaders. Those are the tenants. And Jesus is talking to them. So all that the tenants do in this story and all that happens to them. That's a picture of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. The servants of the Old Testament prophets, those different servants that were sent is a picture where God says, where Jesus is saying that the, the Old Testament prophets were sent and they were rejected. And we know that because Jesus even says this, they rejected the prophets who were before me. Don't be surprised if they reject you as well. That the Old Testament prophets, if you read those crazy books, you know in your Bible where the pages are still stuck together? Those are called the Old Testament prophets, especially the minor prophets, Right? All of those are about how God sent people to warn his people. God sent these prophets to forewarn and to foretell. And so often they were rejected. So the servants in this story, the Old Testament prophets, and the beloved son really needs no explanation. That's Jesus. The others, when it says that the kingdom or that the vineyard would be given to others, that's Gentiles. Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul explains that a little bit more. 
But those are the major players in this story. And what Jesus is showing through that is that there were those who would reject Jesus and reject the authority of Jesus. That their rejection was persistent and it also intensified and escalated. And I would ask you, if you know someone who's rejected Jesus and has continued to reject Jesus and it's been persistent in their rejection, does it not usually follow that the heart continues to harden more and more and more? Now the work of the Holy Spirit softens hearts. But usually as people reject, they continue to reject. Can I say something else that's so important for us as we understand the culture that we live in? You see, God's word helps us understand our own lives, but it also helps us to understand our culture. And there are some crossovers, some applications of what we're talking about in rejecting Jesus to our culture today. That as the rejection persists, the rejection intensifies. As people more and more and more reject the notion of absolute truth, the notion of God, the notion of real morality, as people reject that more blatantly, then that rejection becomes more and more intensified. So for the better part of 2,000 years, we lived in something that was called Christendom, right? Where, where from the time of Constantine, and some have argued from the time of Constantine, I know this is a bit controversial, up until like the early 1900s or mid-1900s, that we lived in this time where if you said that you were a Christian, that was kind of a thumbs up thing. Even if people didn't care to be Christians themselves or known to be Christians themselves, Christians were looked at positively, that there was like, you know, a thumbs up toward being a Christian. And again, painting a broad picture of a long period of history. But that what has happened more and more now is that we live in a post-Christian world, a post-Christian culture. When you label yourself as a Christian, it's not a kind of, oh, that's kind of cool for you or a thumbs up. It's immediately a thumbs down. Those people who are so tolerant and inclusive suddenly become intolerant and exclusive, Right? And so living in a post-Christian culture, there's an intensification of rejection of morality and the Bible and absolute truth and the fundamental tenets that Christian faith is built on. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because Jesus told us it was going to be that way. Some of us, like those servants, will be rejected for Jesus. Right? That's not the main theme of this parable but it is a subplot that some of us like the servants in the parable will be rejected for jesus and for some of us that, that's going to hurt some of you have experienced relational rejection because you took a stand for jesus some of you it's cost you financially uh maybe it's cost you at work maybe it's cost you in other relationships maybe you've been ex excluded from things for calling yourself a christian but I want you to know that for some of us, like the servants, we suffer rejection for Jesus. But here's what I want you to really know. It's better to, to suffer rejection for Jesus than to suffer rejection by Jesus. Amen? I'd rather suffer rejection standing for Jesus and have people reject me than to end up on the last day, Jesus looking at me and saying, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. Because it's always better to suffer rejection for Jesus than to suffer rejection by Jesus, as some do in this parable. I want to draw your attention to verse 13 again. It says, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? After the servants, after Jesus is again telling that, he had, that God had sent the prophets, What shall I do? And he says, I will send my beloved son. 
when he should have responded in anger, when he should have responded in justice, when he should have uh, responded in retribution, here's the lesson. God responded in grace. This is a story about grace. That this parable has the grace of God and the love of God written all over it. One servant, then a second servant, that's a second chance. Then a third servant, that's a third chance. And then sending the beloved son. This is God's grace. In fact, Jesus in Luke 20 is telling a story and telling a parable. There's another passage of scripture that some of you may have heard before. And Jesus isn't telling a story, he's like telling it as it is. And a man comes to him and asks him a question, and it's nighttime, and Jesus says these words, which reflect what he's teaching in Luke. In John chapter 3, if you've heard this before, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. You see that reflected in our parable? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Grace, the Father sent the Son. For God did not send the Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 19 says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and that people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. I want you to see the grace that is here. And I want you to hear this, that the authority of Jesus is always grounded in the grace and the love of God. For some of us, maybe for some of you, you grew up under harmful authority. So whenever you hear the word authority, it makes you cringe. I've told this before, but I went to Christian school, and on the back of my report card was like the morality standard, right? So on the inside was all the grades and stuff that people actually care about on your college grant transcripts on the back of it was your like morality scorecard most of mine was pretty good but there was this one little section about four or five things and you always got an e for excellent a g for good an s for satisfactory which i was shooting for or an n for needs improvement and this one little section had to do with things like is courteous and plays nice with other kids and a couple of other things. And one of them was shows respect for authority. And I swear, as an elementary schooler, every, I'd get the yellow envelope and I'd pull it out. And everything would be all good. And you get to that one section. N, 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 double N. I'm like, you can't give me a double N? That'll damage my psyche. What is this, the 80s? You can't do that. And so my parents actually one year said, like, fourth quarter, if you get any N's on the back of your report card, no TV for the whole summer. Uh, and, and actually, I lost TV for the whole summer. <laughs> but... But for so many of us, that concept of being respectful for authority or submitting to authority is difficult because even spiritually, we've seen people misuse and abuse spiritual authority. Maybe in our family, maybe at our church, maybe at a Christian school, in other ways, we've seen people disrespect, uh, use authority in the wrong way. And so whenever we hear authority, it makes us bristle. And I'll be honest with you, it makes me bristle a lot because I saw a lot of that. In order to understand Jesus' authority, in order to like really be able to, to, to say, oh, okay, I'm going to submit to the authority of Jesus, we have to understand that the authority of Jesus is always grounded in the grace and the love of God, right? That that's, like, authority is actually a good thing. This is where culture gets so skewed. 
Because there are so many people out there, and maybe you here, who have been hurt by bad authority, that then we say, well, the answer is no authority, which actually hurts even worse. And so people are running around looking for freedom by pushing aside authority. And as I said, they're only finding autonomy. They're not finding freedom. Because true freedom is found when we place ourselves under the loving authority of God. We place ourselves under the loving and caring and grace-filled authority of Jesus. You see, the Bible isn't a book of rules to keep, but it's about a relationship to follow that makes me want to understand that the rules are there for my protection. As a matter of fact, if I'm really living the way that God wants me to live under his authority, it's really the safest place I can possibly be. And we could lay that out for everything that the Bible teaches by way of relationships and family and marriage and culture and, and life in general to help people to see that the things that people are dying for in our culture, like hope and love and acceptance and all these things, are actually found under the authority of Jesus. So I want to be clear this morning to understand that church in at times, that church and church leaders have intentionally or unintentionally abused spiritual authority that jesus does not ever abuse his spiritual authority and that the spiritual authority of jesus is always grounded in the love and the grace of god the heavenly father and so it is a safe place to bow yourself to the authority of jesus none of that was in my notes and i didn't say it in the first service so they're going to have to go back and watch it but i just feel like we need to hear that right like we need to know that and we need to understand that Verse 16, the end of verse 16 through verse 18, Jesus then looks at his audience and says, now here's why I just told you that story. It says, when they, that's when his audience, when his audience heard the parable, they said this, surely not. Like, no way. This isn't going to happen. You can't do that. You can't take away what's ours and give it to other people. God's a God of love. God's a God of acceptance. God's a God of tolerance. God's a God, he would never do anything wrong. He would never hurt anybody. Jesus is a great moral teacher. And Jesus is love. And I've seen the signs. And they're brightly colored in rainbow, right? Everybody's welcomed and affirmed and accepted because God is love. Which is weird when I read, he will come and destroy those tenants. Well, they heard it, they said, surely not. When people are confronted with who Jesus really is, when they're confronted with who the God of the Bible really is, for many it's surely not. For many it's there's no way. For many it's I can't get behind that. And it's usually I can't get behind that because of what I would have to give up for myself. And Jesus confronts that. Verse 17. I love verse 17 because it's a parent verse. Right? If, you've, if you're a parent of like kids now, especially teenagers... If you've ever been, you're going to be like, I know what he's talking about here. I totally get this. Verse 17. But he looked directly at them. He went like this. Everybody look at me. He went, right here, everybody. Right here. All right? Look at me when I'm talking to you. That's Jesus. So you got a verse. Parents, use that verse this afternoon. Look at me when I'm talking to you. Jesus said it, so can I. <laughs> oh. No, he's getting serious with them, though. And it says he looked directly at them. He's, he's intensifying right now. What then is this that is written? And by the way, whenever Jesus said that, by this point in his ministry, people are like, oh, no. 
he's going to use our Bible against us. Because he's going to, when he says it, it is written, he's going to reach back somewhere into the Old Testament, which like they really bought into. And he's like, he's going to take our Bible and he's going to use us, make it, he's going to use it to make us look like idiots again. Because he did it over, Jesus quoted scripture a lot. It's almost like he wrote it. I mean, it's crazy. But, <laughs> but it's like he knew what was going on. But he reaches back and he goes, it is written. And then he says this verse that probably you've heard. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's from Psalm 118, verse 22. And if you have time this week, go back and read all of Psalm 118. There are striking parallels, by the way, between the Holy Week, but the, the time between the, tri the triumphal entry and the passion, the, the crucifixion of Christ, and what is told about hundreds of years in advance in Psalm 118. But Jesus takes this and he pulls it out. And, and usually, by the way, when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, they'll take a piece out knowing that the people who heard it would understand the context around it. And he puts it on the table and he says, you remember this verse, the stone that the builders rejected will become the cornerstone? Well, it has. And the cornerstone is standing in front of you and you're rejecting him. And as you know, the cornerstone, the chief of the corner was the one that the rest of the building rested on. And Jesus says, this whole thing that you're building rests on me. This whole idea, the whole Old Testament, all of the scriptures, it rests on one cornerstone, and he's standing in front of you, and still you reject him. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You say, I think I've heard that in some other places, and you're right, in Acts chapter 4, not long after Jesus' story here, Peter and John, Jesus has died and rose and uh, ascended into heaven. And Peter and John are standing before a council. And it's actually maybe some of the same people, probably some of the same people that Jesus tells this story to in Luke 20. The same people that, Jesus, that had Jesus crucified. Peter and John are then standing before that same council. And they're telling Peter and John, like, you can't talk about that. that uh, the authority of Jesus threatens our authority. You've got to stop talking about Jesus. And they say this in Acts 4.11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. You're the builders. You're the ones who were supposed to be building this thing. You're the ones who had responsibility for the kingdom. In different vernacular in the, in the vineyard story, you're the ones who are the tenants. You were supposed to be doing the building. You rejected the most important part of the building. Verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The cornerstone that was rejected. Later in Acts chapter 5, and I won't dig into all of it, they're arrested again because they said, you know what? We've got to tell people about Jesus because we get it. And it says that they were actually rejected and that they were beaten for that. And then they left and they actually rejoiced for having suffered rejection in the name of Jesus. Jesus says in these verses that there will be those who reject him. And then in verse 18, it says everyone, Luke, Luke 20, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And if you have cross references in your Bible, the references to Isaiah chapter 8, as well as Daniel chapter 2, two other Old Testament passages that Jesus pulls out and puts on the table and says, here are three important Old Testament texts that his listeners would have known and understood and said, you are rejecting everything by rejecting me. 
it seems pretty clear what he's getting across with this parable. There are those who will hear and respond to Jesus' authority, will place himself in submission to Jesus' authority, and will live in safety under the authority of Jesus because it's the place we were all intended to live. But there will always be people who will continually and progressively more and more reject Jesus. And what I have to say as a preacher is that rejection of Jesus will ultimately result in his retribution. There will come a day... When retribution will be meted out. That we can't go on rejecting Jesus forever. As a culture, our culture can't go on rejecting Jesus forever. As individuals, we can't go on rejecting Jesus forever. And I want you to know about the love of God. And I want you to know about the grace of God. But I also want you to know about the just retribution of God. As told in stories like this. Because Jesus puts it on the table to say, if I don't accept if I don't live under the authority of Jesus and place myself under his authority then he will bow my knee for me in a different context under retribution so how do we respond to this I think it's interesting that as we end the series on the parables all of the parables have taught us truths about how to put ourselves place ourselves under God's kingdom authority how to live the kingdom life that he wants us to live Step one is becoming a Christian. If you're not a Christian, it's accepting Christ as your Savior, placing yourself under his authority. Step two is living in security under that authority. Because as I said, I don't know about you, but my life constantly wants to push against that authority, doesn't it? And so I continue to place myself under his authority. One of the things I try to do this week as, we've, as we're finishing off the series is in the sermon supplement that you can find online, uh, you can find it in the Church Center app. I listed all 15 of the parables that we've studied in the texts. And the challenge I'd give to you this week is to just review what is the takeaway that you've had from each of those. And then what are like one or two different things maybe that from this series in God's Word from over the last 15 plus weeks. Uh, what are a couple things that are going to change in, in your life because of that? So that's an opportunity for you to do that. I'm going to pray for us. And again, if you're not a believer this morning, man, this is an opportunity for you to accept Christ and join the family of God. I told the first service too, I'm going to pray. And I know usually when the pastor says amen, then we're like already ready to go. So what I need you to do is buckle your seatbelts for a second because I'm going to pray. And then I got to uh, give you some like important announcements. And it has to do with food. So you're going to want to sit, sit still, okay? Just telling you. Father, we are so thankful for your word and your church. We're thankful for gathered times like this on a Sunday morning where we can just sit here for an hour plus and reflect on who you are and what Jesus has done, your grace and your goodness. God, I pray that you would, would propel us to, to living for you, um, that you would propel us to seeing that authority uh, as the best and the safest thing for us. And rather than rejecting that, that we would accept it and be excited about it and live for you because of it. So I thank you for this whole series um, that's helped us to see Jesus' teaching on these really specific areas of life. And God, for the person here um, or the person who's listening online or who will listen later um, who still has questions, I, God, I pray that you would help them to see you for who you are. And God, I want to take a minute to pray for our culture. We just see that our culture continues to progressively more and more and more, more severely 
just reject you wholesale and reject morality and absolute truth and all the things that even underpin a, a relationship with you. God, I pray that you would do what needs to be done to bring people back to you. And we say, as we've studied, come, Lord Jesus, rescue us, uh, get us out of here. But God, help us to be faithful right now in the in-between. Um, thank you again for this church so we can strengthen each other. In Jesus' name, amen.